From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The first Technology Modernization Fund Award for 2021 is on the books. The Labor Department will update its enterprise data platform with a $9.6 million uh, award from the fund. FedScoop reports the award came Friday on the third anniversary of the establishment of the fund. The new leader of the Defense Information Systems Agency will move toward buying more IT as a service. Lieutenant General Robert Skinner says he'll lead DISA toward a, quote, more holistic look and faster pace of outsourcing IT. Defense News reports Skinner's in his first month of leading DISA after taking over at the beginning of the month from Vice Admiral Nancy Norton. The Office of Personnel Management will run a special combined federal campaign for victims of the powerful winter storm in Texas in February. Acting OPM Director Kathy McGettigan writes the campaign comes after appeals from the federal executive boards in Houston, Dallas and San Antonio. GovExec reports a special edition of the CFC will run through April 9th. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff urges caution on a plan to split up the National Security Agency and U.S. Cyber Command. Defense One reports General Mark Milley says the signals intelligence from the NSA is among the most valuable pieces of intelligence the military gets every day. Milley says splitting the two now might slow the information channels. Ron Marks is president of ZPN National Security and Cyber Strategies, former CIA official and former intelligence advisor to two Senate Majority Leaders. Ron, thanks very much for coming on the program. The, the word that General Milley used that I thought was most striking here was now. Sounds like he's not opposed to the idea of splitting NSA and Cyber Command eventually, but now's not the time. Am I hearing him correctly, do you think? Yeah, I think so. I, I, you know, my first reaction when I heard this is, you know, we need two more stovepipes like we need a hole in our head. I mean, if we already look in terms of cyber, we're like sort of a 19th century Victorian roofline. Uh, but I, I think he's carrying on what has been a, a, a discussion since 2017 through the creation of all of this, which is, you know, are these two compatible in the sense of are they taking resources away from one another? Um, if I'm him at this point and I'm dealing with a Biden administration, which thanks to both solar winds and this Microsoft break uh, within the last few days, uh, they're going to be doing a full review at this point. Uh, part of it is obviously looking at you know what offensive capability, but where was it? Where was the fence line here? Uh, and how do these guys get into the fence line? Uh, so I think there. Are, some questions both domestically and on the borders that we need to answer. So, yeah, I agree with them. I think it's a little premature right now to give any consideration to that. So one of the things that you taught me a long time ago, Ron, is always follow the money. And if you use the phrase a moment ago, these organizations, one might be taking resources away from one another. If the money's separate, they're already stovepiped, aren't they? Yeah, very much so. Well, they're, they're stovepipe in the sense of where the monies are coming from. You can buy individuals actually buy multiple kinds of program money. Uh, so that's not impossible. You can buy programs with multiple program money. That's also not impossible. Uh, but then again, you are dealing with two separate sources of money. You're going to deal with one that's coming out of the DNI. You're going to have one that's coming out of DOD. They do crosshatch with each other. Uh, they actually do a pretty decent job at that level. Uh, but, yeah, it introduces one more step of uh, at least a budgetary pain that you don't want to deal with.
Um, Patrick Tucker in Defense One, the piece I referenced earlier, uh, writes this. Under a dual-hat arrangement, one person serves as the head of both Cyber Command and of the NSA. Is that maybe the issue here? Is that a potential partial solution, is to do away with the dual hat but keep the rest of the construct? Yeah, I think that's exaggerated to some extent. I mean, on a daily basis, you have chief operating officers effectively under Nakasone dealing with individual issues in terms of both of them. Um, you know, does it take attention away? I really don't think so. I mean, the, the missions are so complementary at this point. Uh, you know, the NSA, the older NSA guys are concerned about SIGINT and whether or not we're really losing on that, but I don't hear a lot of grumbling in that area, so it sounds like we're doing reasonably well. Uh, what NSA has become for Cyber Command is really in a lot of ways the, the modern version of, of probably what we really need, which is that this, this artificial separation between intelligence and, and operators in the cyber field and law enforcement. Um, in, in the defense and military end. This is not Sherman Kent and national security policy being separated from the analysts. Uh, you know, these guys need to have close order support uh, in the case of NSA developing tools, uh, helping with the targeting, uh, you know, giving some additional insights uh, into what's, uh, what's going on out there, which, which has really strengthened and helped Cyber Command. Uh, I, I just think that, that separating them you know, it's a bureaucrat's delight. I understand what they're talking about in terms of concerns on duplication and all the rest of it. Uh, if, but I, I just don't see it right now. And frankly, uh, unless there was some kind of major follow-up uh, in terms of solar winds and the Microsoft uh, break-in, I would really be loath to break them up right now. I think they're a good complement with each other. In fact, if anything, I think they serve as a model for the future. And given that, and, and you're using your words right now a moment ago, the sentiment, at least, that I took from General Milley's comments, is it time to maybe think about just leaving it alone, at least for the foreseeable future? Continuing to touch stuff seems to be the biggest challenge in the Defense Department. I, you know, I only have to turn you to the domestic side to show what a mess that is. Uh, the fact is that CISA at this point is beginning to gain some control but you have multiple players from commerce to FCC to SEC to DHS to FBI, uh, all playing in the domestic sector. And, and frankly, the coordination uh, is tough uh, because no one's really called the shot in it. I, I would point to the 2020 election. I think when you did give CISA the lead, uh, you were able to put a cross-organizational group together. They did a very effective job. And I think that is the way of thinking about the future. We got a town full of lawyers. I'm actually married to one. Uh, and what I will say to you is that they tend to think in terms of titles in US code. We have Title 10 and Title 50 and Title 6 for Homeland Security. And that's not the way the world in the 21st century operates. You know, the law is a breathing entity and it has to think about what is effective against these various challenges we have. Uh, Title 10 and Title 50 are a function of 1947. Uh, you know, Title VI uh, for Homeland Security is a function of 2001. These problems exist, but other problems have mounted on them and inside and outside our borders now in ways that we haven't experienced before, except perhaps terrorism. And, and we need to come to grips with this. These, we're, this is too much. The system no longer works. When you see this kind of disruption and constant failure, this isn't about stupid people. These are about people who are trying very hard to work with a system that no longer reflects the underlying facts of the situation. And I think it's about time that we stand back a little bit and think about coordination and not separation of these kinds of entities. Ron Marks, thanks very much as always. Great to have you back in the program.
Thank you, Francis. Delighted to be here. You can find a link to the Defense One piece about General Milley's comments on the split at govmatters.tv resources. Up next, the risks of a changing climate. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the Defense Department's quest for an accurate look at the climate threats it's up against. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back to Defense Departments at work now on a comprehensive climate risk analysis. The directive comes from an executive order President Biden signed that calls for a full report by the end of May. Aaron Sikorsky is deputy director for the, of the Center for Climate and Security and director of the International Military Council on Climate and Security. She's former deputy director of the Strategic Futures Group on the National Intelligence Council. Aaron, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Uh, this is interesting to me that you write, and, and your colleague Kate Guy, write about the parallel between China and climate change on the, at the same time that American representatives are meeting with Chinese representatives uh, in Alaska today. What's the parallel there in uh, America talking to Chinese diplomats and America talking to whom on climate change? Sure. Well, thanks for having me on to talk about this important issue. I think the parallel is that as important as looking at China is, it's equally important to look at how climate change is shaping the national security landscape. And in fact, you can't divorce the two. So I hope that in the conversations that Secretary Blinken and his colleagues are having today with their Chinese counterparts, that climate change is front and center in the discussion. Similarly, we need to bring as high level of representation to talking to diplomats at the United Nations and elsewhere in other countries about what we're doing on climate change and the security risks posed by climate change. Who is one of the questions that you and Aaron pose and answer in this piece? Uh, and the, another one that you address is what? What should the uh, climate assessment that the Defense Department is preparing and what should those conversations with the parties that you just discussed comprise? Sure. So in the climate risk assessment for the department, what we propose is that it must go beyond the direct threats to U.S. military installations and bases from climate change, which, of course, is an important concern. But our research at the Center for Climate and Security has shown that the threats really go well beyond this. When you look at rising temperatures, extreme weather, uh, sea level rise, it contributes to state fragility around the globe, the risk of conflict, and it even shapes global competition among great powers. And so when you think about examining this issue, you must go broadly and look at integrating the climate modeling with social science and our understanding of risks abroad. The discussion about what to do is fascinating to me because outside of Washington, the discussion doesn't have anything to do with politics. It has to do with what people are experiencing. For example, watermen over on the Eastern Shore who are very reliable uh, voters in one party that doesn't really seem to want to do much on climate change right now understand what's happening. What, what has to happen in Washington, do you think, to help folks understand that this is a reality that lots of people of lots of political stripes deal with all across the country? 
Sure. You know, what we've seen over the past few years in Congress in particular is that uh, climate security, recognizing the security risks, is a bipartisan issue. And when people see the day-to-day -day threats to their livelihoods, day-to-day -day threats to U.S. national security, whether that's here within the United States or abroad, there's bipartisan recognition that uh, that climate change needs to be needs to be addressed and the national defense authorization bills for the past few years have passed in congress with bipartisan support including measures to address climate security risks and as more and more americans experience the issue in their daily lives you see their political representatives recognizing the importance of doing something about it you also are right about the win of this analysis but in the time that we have left i want to move to the last issue that you and and Kate write about Aaron, and that is how should defense leaders undertake this analysis to create a product that stays useful into the future? That strikes me as maybe the most important issue here is creating a product that's useful today, but that's also useful for the next administration and the administration after that and so on. Right, exactly. The, the way to do that is to make sure that this risk assessment is really just the first step not the last. It needs to be a document that sets the stage for further integrating climate risk analysis into everything the department does going forward. And that's why we argue that you need buy-in from lots of different people within the department, within the combatant commands, and also other agencies within government as you shape this analysis so they all feel ownership and feel like it addresses the concerns they uh, are most worried about. So you need to create something that, that can be used in wargaming, can be put in the national defense strategy, can be used in other documents, so everyone sees how these climate risks affect things they care about in their work on national security. And if they do that, I think this document will be a success and it won't just sit on a shelf. We have about a minute left, Aaron. What will you look at when this document comes out to see if the things that you and Kate have envisioned have actually come to pass? Sure, I would look at three things. One, is it global in scope? Does it look at risks every in every part of the world, not just where US uh, military bases are? That's one. Number two, uh, how long is the time horizon? Does it look out, say, 5, 10, 20 years even to these risks so we can prepare now for those in the future? And then three, who was involved in writing it and did the process of creating the document actually create knowledge and new uh, staff and people within government who have a say in these issues and a stake in them and can bring that knowledge to bear going forward. Aaron Sikorsky, thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. You can find a link to that piece on War on the Rocks at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, reforming the budget process to speed up acquisition. How to make military procurement more adaptable without touching the acquisition process. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back to Chairman of the House Armed Services Committee. Adam Smith says he'll make how the Defense Department spends its money the focus of his committee's oversight in addition to what the department buys. It's the latest effort to connect budget and policy in the acquisition process. Bill Greenwald is visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, former Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Industrial Policy. He's writing about the subject on the AEI website under the title Competing in Time. 
Bill, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You and uh, Dan Pat of the Hudson Institute are looking at any number of takeaways and recommendations for what to do to speed the acquisition process. What are some of the most important things that you looked at? Yes, uh, well, we, we looked at the uh, how acquisition reform has fared in the last uh, five years. In a sense, there was so much reform to try to uh, bring uh, a time-based focus into the acquisition process. And the reality is, is that has not been successful. And the reason has been that the department has continues to be focused on its linear predictive processes, starting with the requirements process, the budget process, the contracting process, and the acquisition process. All of this takes time. And frankly, when you, when you add it all up, it takes something like seven years to really initiate a program about 10 to 15 years just to get anything uh, significantly different uh, uh, from, from what we have today. And, 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 and something really disruptive might be 20, 25 years. We just don't have the time to do that. We're facing uh, China right now. You get at the issue right off the bat here, it strikes me. The keystone, you write, of the Defense Department's institutional architecture is not acquisition, but rather the budgeting process. A lot of stuff, as you just mentioned, has been done to try to address the acquisition process. Nothing has been done to try to address the budgeting process. Is that the crux of the problem, Bill? Uh, that really is. The budget drives everything else. And it takes about three uh, plus years to, to start uh, to, to get to, to line in the budget for anything. And then it requires requirements to start that process. Then it takes two years to contract. The, the budget needs to be more flexible and agile if we're to drive some of the new acquisition changes we have, like middle tier acquisition or other transactions, which can reduce the, the acquisition time, can reduce the contracting time. But without the budget time, as we've seen, these programs and, and, and capabilities are just not making it out to the field as fast as they should. Yeah, the, the branches, I think, and, and the Defense Department as a whole have boasted, and I think rightfully so, about the, uh, the moves that they've made to try to cut that curve. The problem, as you say, is they can't get the money any differently than they got it for any other kind of acquisition. What changes that, Bill? Uh, I think there has to be, a, a, first, just the recognition we have a problem. This is a 60-year-old process that was brought in from the auto industry, uh, best practices in the 1950s. Well, we know what it did to the auto industry, but for whatever reason, we haven't modified that process uh, for the Department of Defense. We've modified acquisition, we've modified requirements, we've modified contract, but we stuck to this predictive program budgeting planning process for, for six decades, and it's not working. All right, you and uh, Dan write this, Congress and DOD should cooperate to promptly launch a limited scope pilot project on an alternative resource allocation process. Do you have an idea of what that should look like and what that pilot process should actually pilot? Or is it just, or, or are you just suggesting that it's something that needs to happen? Well, we understand how long it took to try to reform the acquisition process. And frankly, we're there. We, we have the ability to, do, to go fast in acquisition we want to. But we realize it's gonna take a long time and that we need to probably look at a commission to look at the full uh, budget process. So in the meantime, we should be looking at mission budgeting and uh, uh, basically taking a mission, probably in Indo-PACOM, and providing more flexibility and funding for there. We've looked at portfolio funding. We've looked at the ability to fund as if you were a venture capitalist using uh, Defense Production Act funding. A lot of different ways we could test and pilot new ways, but at the same time, you have to look at a more systemic 
uh, review of the process. And uh, another recommendation that you make to that effect is holistic changes to the planning, programming, budget, and execution, PPBE. Uh, what should that look like, Bill? Well, I think uh, first we have to divide the world up into what it is we want to do. Some things probably PPBE can work for. In other words, they're, they're predictive. We, we are going to continue to buy these or have these type of functions for the next uh, 30, 40, 50 years. But when it comes to innovation, we need to start looking like Silicon Valley. We need to start being able to fund like Silicon Valley. And the ironic thing is Silicon Valley uh, came out of DOD back in the 60s and adopted the best practices of what the 1950s uh, defense process looked like. That was agile budgeting. That was being able to move fast and quick and, and start programs and stop programs and fund multiple uh, uh, pathways to innovation. The third recommendation that you and Dan make is the policy and research community should conduct comparative analyses of the bureaucratic research uh, allocation processes between the U.S. and China. And you note something earlier in this work that maybe um, is different than what I expected. Um, you write, China may have an edge in its resource allocation process, although this topic merits further investigation. I have the impression that if Xi Jinping says we're going to do something, we're going to do something in China. Is that not necessarily the case? Uh, it's almost very similar to when Eisenhower wanted to do something in the 50s and it happened. Uh, yeah, no, it, the, the, it looks as though the Chinese are, are moving faster. It looks as though uh, that's the case, but the data is really not available in the public uh, uh, to, to, to make that, those, those uh, conclusions definitively. Uh, it looks that way, but we are asking, we think that the department needs to spend more time uh, uh, making comparisons and figuring out why it is that we have the legacy Soviet process and the Chinese have the Silicon Valley process. It doesn't make a lot of sense, and it's something that we really need to have uh, our, our best analysts focusing on. Bill Greenwald, thanks very much as always. Thank you. You can find a link to Bill's piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. And don't forget, if you miss an episode of the show, that's on our website, too. You get a preview of every program when you sign up for our daily program guide. You just text GovMatters to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC 7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business and government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.